0: just occasionally, in the life of a nation. There is an event which actually seems to define that nation for centuries. For America, for instance, that was undoubtedly the Declaration of Independence in 1776. It began with those famous words, ''We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness.'' Or France, for instance, was its defining moment was the French Revolution in many ways with that great cry, liberté, égalité, fraternité, liberty, equality, brotherhood. Those moments are actually not just symbolic. They, are, they, are, they have a more d- deep, profound influence than that. American identity today is substantially defined by that Declaration of Independence and the Constitution which followed just uh, decades later. That famously begins, we the people, do you remember? And the French policies of today are also profoundly influenced by uh, and what was set in, in, in uh, train a couple of hundred years ago. Their colour-blind policy um, concerning ethnic minorities which has been in the headlines recently get, owes more than a little to those 18th century ideals of enforced equality and brotherhood. Ever since the French Revolution governments have, have uh, uh, sought forced uniformity of their people. And of course Old Testament Israel had a similar defining moment a similar moment which established their identity forever. It's not that things hadn't happened before, it's not that there weren't significant events afterwards. But the book of Exodus records the events which defined the nature of that nation. Before this, Israel was just a sprawling extended family, their great Ancestor had founded uh, uh, the the dynasty. It had grown under Isaac and uh, Jacob and Joseph. Um, As I said, in Joseph's day the family um, found themselves in in, in, um, Egypt, ultimately in slavery in Egypt, without freedom, without a settled home, without their own laws. They had been given promises under Abraham, but they hadn't really established themselves as a nation yet. They hadn't really seen what they were looking for, even begun to appear. And the book of Exodus describes how Israel broke free from that slavery, how they began to establish themselves as a free nation in a land of their own. It tells us uh, how God gave them a new charter, a new declaration of independence, a new constitution, more profound than any constitution since the Ten Commandments. No, what's recorded in this book of Exodus is defining for Israel. The rest of the Old Testament always looks back to the, the events in this book to understand what God wants for them. But actually those, those events all those years ago are not just, ju- not just defining for Israel, they are foundational for God's church as well. The New Testament Sees Jesus as fulfilling a project that was begun in the exodus. Again and again in the New Testament, Jesus' life and ministry is described as being like an exodus, like the new exodus, like a second exodus, like a final exodus. Um, just to give you one example, in Luke's Gospel, Luke records Jesus's transfiguration. He records um, him going up on a mountain with his, cr- his cr- three closest friends and for a moment he shines as brightly as the sun and they see his deity. Um, There are two other characters that appear at that moment, Moses and Elijah. And Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9 that they were discussing, well the NIV says, his departure with him. But the word Luke uses is his exodus. his final road to freedom. A road that for Jesus will involve him dying on the cross for our sins and rising again to eternal life. Winning a freedom that that those Israelites could, could barely dream of. Because this, uh, this book, Exodus, only describes the liberation of one la- nation. It only describes them gaining freedom from the tyranny of Egypt. It only describes them heading for the Promised Land. But what the final Exodus achieves, the completion of God's Exodus plan, is for Jesus to deliver people from every tribe and nation and to deliver, to deliver them not from Egypt, but from the tyranny of sin and death and not to the promised land, but to the new heaven and the new earth. So, you see, this book is a central one in the Bible. This book is one of the most exciting books that we could study. It is our constitution. It is our constitution. Foundational document. It is one of our great defining moments. This is the beginning of a story whose fulfillment was in Jesus, but it lays the foundation for everything in the lives of Christians. Our relationship with God the way of salvation, our relationship with one another, our future hope and many, many more things are established in this book. Ask an American any question about their national life and sooner or later they will take you back to the the founding fathers. Ask a a Frenchman about their modern life and uh, and those who know their history will soon start talking about la révolution, ask a Christian teacher about what it means to be a Christian and they will take you back sooner or later to the book of Exodus. As my hope then, over the next three months, as we study this book, we will gain a deeper, stronger, foundational understanding of what it means to be a Christian. This morning we must just look Uh, uh, briefly at the first couple of chapters of this uh, this book of Exodus and try to answer actually just uh, one question. Who is God going to use for this great event? Those of us who read the book before know there's going to be great things happening over the next few weeks as we read. Who is God going to use? And these two chapters, chapters 1 and 2, parade for us different candidates that God might use to achieve his great purposes. The first uh, of those is found in uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to to 21. Um, I've perhaps been a little bit unfair in calling them sinners. Sinners who fear God, but I hope you'll see why. We must understand a little bit of the, the, um, the, the, the context that we saw as we, read, uh, as we read the story. Joseph was an honoured man. Joseph had given the Israelites an honoured place in the nation of Israel, but time had passed and Joseph had been forgotten and now they were being oppressed. And where is God? How is God going to deliver them? He is clearly there, quietly doing his work. Remember I said Abraham had been promised their descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand in the seashore? Well, look at verse 7 of chapter 1. The Israelites were fruitful, multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. God is obviously working away quietly. Just as he is in our our nation today, so, there are growing numbers of Christians once again in in uh, uh, in our nation. The, the decline in overall church attendance masks uh, masks the uh, the steady growth of those who really are committed to Scripture. And. Uh, uh, we should not be surprised that there is a growing chorus against such people because that's exactly what they found in Egypt, the Israelites. Rising opposition. A new king, verse 8, who did not know about Joseph, new leaders in Britain who did not know about the great, laudable history of Christian service in this country, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites are becoming numerous. Let us deal shrewdly with them. They will become even more numerous or they will become more numerous and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies. Here is the challenge then. God is working but opposition is rising. Who is God going to use? Onto the stage step a couple of midwives, verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth, observe them on the delivery stall. If it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. Now, I married a midwife. And if I was there, I could uh, have given Pharaoh some advice. Pharaoh, never try and tell a midwife what to do. Verse 17. Verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let those boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous. Give birth before the midwives arrive. These are plucky ladies. They stand before a man who can have them killed with a single word and they quietly mock him. Hebrew women are vigorous, not like Egyptian women, Pharaoh. These are strong women. These are brave women. Yeah, some people worry about the fact that they lie at breaking one of the Ten Commandments. But you see, God's laws were never intended to be applied in a mindless way. Not that God's laws are irrelevant. God's rules, laws are vitally important. Uh, God's, God's rules as he sets them down um, in the Bible are to be adhered to. But life is also complex. Sometimes whatever decision we make, there will be some uh, um, strict breaking of the letter of the law. Sometimes that's unavoidable. Should they tell a lie or should they uh, uh, collude with Pharaoh? God looked on their hearts and he knew these women made their decision in good conscience before him. They feared God and he wasn't going to be too worried about the fact that they lied to Pharaoh. Verse uh, 21, God blesses them because they feared God. These women are particularly honoured women in the, the Old Testament story. They, they would certainly be in God's New Year's honours list. Their names are carefully recorded. They are Shifra and Puah. let it be recorded forever in God's word. That's the first sort of people who are presented to us as people who may be useful in God's great task. God uses like that, people like that. He's not centrally involved in our sins and failures. We all have a list, too long to mention of those. He is centrally involved in whether in our hearts we fear God. Is that you? We need men and women like that today. We need people who will state, take their stand on obedience to God, not obedience to the prevailing powers in society. And uh, Christian women are told you will not find a partner unless you compromise and, uh, and uh, look outside the, the, the church to find one. We need women who will stand up and say I am going to trust God. I fear God more than I fear the powers of society. And I will look for him to bless me. I won't worry about those blessings the world may bestow. men and women in general, are told that unless they give their souls to their work, unless they devote themselves to servicing the mortgage and making sure that, that, that they have a nice house, they will not have a roof over their heads. They will, be, uh, they will be, uh, have an impoverished old age. They are intimidated, frankly, I think, into not putting God first. we need men and women who will stand up and say, I fear God. I am going to get down on my knees and seek God for what I should do and when I know what I should do, I will not worry about the consequences, I will do it. There's an extraordinary, attractive jauntiness about those women, isn't there? Imagine them standing before Pharaoh, saying what they say. Because they know they're safe. Oh, yes, Pharaoh could take their life. But he couldn't take their life without God's permission. So they are absolutely secure. We need people like that. But we have to be aware that even great people like those were not used, were not able to deliver God's people. Verse 22. Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. If the Hebrew midwives are not going to do his will, then he will just make uh, the rest of his people do his will. Uh, Though they are mentioned honourably and no doubt they save many lives, they are not God's deliverer. Second option that is uh, paraded before us is in verses uh, 1 to 10 of chapter 2. Again, uh, maybe I'm a little unfair in calling them schemers who trust God, but I refer to Moses' parents. Chapter 2 records this, fine child being born and his mother carefully makes this floating cot for him and hides him in the reed. S- some suggest that the events described in those first ter- ten verses are, are, are simply by chance but I find it very difficult to believe because that cot is placed where Pharaoh's daughter will happen to stumble across it. It would be pretty stupid to hide your infant son exactly where you knew Pharaoh's daughter habitually went and bathed. There is a a mark of a plan about this. A very risky risky plan, but a calculated risk. And as the story unfolds, Pharaoh's uh, daughter comes down to bathe. She hears the baby crying. She Finds the baby, and amazingly, she is as enchanted by this child as her parents were. So it is that Moses is brought up in the royal palace. Hebrews chapter 11 actually makes it plain that um, this risky plan that we see, was embarked on by faith. Moses' parents had been found harbouring a male male child. Who knows what punishment they would have received? But um, Hebrews says that like the midwives, they were not afraid of the king's edict. Here then are another couple of plucky people Plucky people who are prepared to, 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 to make some risky plans for God. Are you prepared to do that? It's traditional in some circles to call them um, Bible-focused evangelical churches like ours, conservative evangelical churches. I wonder whether that's sometimes um, in fact more of a comment on our um, unwillingness to take risks for God than anything else. these, these, These people made a bold and ambitious plan. Let's get Moses into Pharaoh's daughter's hands. Maybe that will just protect him. And because they did not fear the king's edict, because they had faith in God, God honors that. But still, the breakthrough hasn't quite come yet. The next uh, candidate, of course, is the child himself, Moses. And he, I have to say, at least as as far as we get in the story today, is a hothead who ignores God. The story of his adulthood actually begins well. He has clearly not forgotten his Hebrew roots, despite the fact that he's in Pharaoh's palace. Verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Moses, though, doesn't have his, abil- his parents' ability to plan. He doesn't have that, the Hebrew midwives' courage to stand up before Pharaoh. And most, of, most, most importantly, unlike those previous two characters, he doesn't demonstrate faith and he doesn't, doesn't demonstrate the fear of God. He takes absolutely everything into his own hands. Verse, verse uh, twelve: Glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the hand I- in the sand. And emboldened by his minor success in this, he decides now is time to declare, him, declare himself as leader. And everything goes wrong. Verse thirteen. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. God's purposes were not achieved. It is a spectacular disaster. God's purposes are not achieved by people who will not listen to him. God loves to use bold schemers who have faith. God loves to use rugged, midwife-like individualists who bow to no man but fear God. But he will not use those who do not fear and trust him. Even, as we know as the story unfolds later, those whom he plans to use in the long run. It doesn't escape their need. humbly bow before God and fear him only. There's an irony in this story. The action of the midwives looks absolutely hopeless but it is unexpectedly um, successful, the action of Moses' parents looks completely ridiculous but it is unexpectedly successful. And the action of Moses looks actually quite hopeful. Here he is in a privileged position with freedom with, uh, um, uh, to, to do what he wants with a, with a heart for, for, uh, for the Hebrews and yet he is, he is disastrous because he will not bow to God. And with the collapse of Moses' grand plan, Moses himself collapses. He flees Midian. He marries a girl called Zipporah who's the daughter of a pagan priest. He doesn't teach her the faith of his uh, fathers. Chapter 4 reveals he hasn't even bothered to to, uh, circumcise his son Gershom. He abandons his faith. It happens. Especially, I notice, it happens to the able and the bold. Because it is easy for them to rise to the top. It is easy for them to gain honours uh, in their their young years. And it is easy for them to disguise the fact that they haven't really learned to fear the Lord. I could take you to person after person who has collapsed like Moses. And some of them never come back to any recognisable faith. But others like Moses will find God stepping into their life again. God has this habit of coming back and knocking on the door again. and calling us back to the ministry He wanted us to have. Beware though, decisions made in the wilderness can be a lasting trial. There is every evidence that Moses' marriage to Zipporah was very unhappy, very tense, that she never shared his faith and that they spent a long time living apart. But even in that circumstance God was prepared to work. Next week we're going to see how finally Moses became useful. But this week we must just see and answer this first question. Who is God going to use He uses plucky women who fear him. He uses parent, scheming parents who trust him. But We have to be honest, they don't achieve much. And that hothead Moses achieved nothing at all. Actually, as the story unfolds, it becomes clear God's going to have to do it himself. In chapter 3, we will see God coming down to rescue his people. In chapters uh, 5 to 12, we will see God personally acting to defeat Pharaoh. In the end, nobody is qualified to rescue people in the way that he wants to. So it is not surprising when we look to look towards God's final moment of Exodus, that final deliverance, that God had to come again and do it. In Jesus. Jesus, you see, unlike the midwives, doesn't even feel he has to lie. He just stands before Pontius Pilate and he says, you would have no power over me if it wasn't given to you. Unlike Moses' parents, he didn't have to devise a clever scheme to save his own life. In fact, he walked straight into Jerusalem and sacrificed his own life. And unlike... Moses, there is no underhand violence, there is no worried glancing this way and that there is simply a long night in prayer to God where he sweats so much it is like blood dripping from him so the final exodus in which Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was raised again to eternal life. The final freedom that he won for us because now we face no condemnation for our sins and are promised the eternal life that Jesus enjoys now. that final exodus had to be done by God just as the first one did but still he uses people for little victories it's the beginning of a new year isn't it when we're reviewing our life i hope we are remember we're going to pray in the silence and i want you just to just to ask yourself could god use me for christians you see the defining question is whether we will follow jesus Whether we will take up our cross daily. Whether we will live like him. Perhaps the question is, what is stopping God using me? What needs to change in my life? Do I need midwife-like courage? Do I need faith that sets in place things that perhaps the world thinks are stupid and yet I do it in faith? Do I need to pray? Not glancing this way and that. But fixing my eyes on heaven. We'll bow for a moment of silence. While you can pray, ask God to lay on your heart one thing that needs to happen in your life. Not to make you a great deliverer, Jesus is that but to help you win those little victories for God.